and welcome to A Bookshelf Binge. I'm your host, Jessica, and today I'm extremely excited for my guest. I'm talking to Dan Gerstein, CEO of Gotham Ghostwriters. Dan is a nationally recognized political writer and communication specialist who has been writing professionally, both for himself and others, for 25 years. Since forming Gotham Ghostwriters, he has become one of the country's top experts on the ghostwriting market. I feel incredibly lucky to have him on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here, Dan. Oh, you're welcome, Jessica. Glad to do this. Can you kind of talk about your history and like how you started ghostwriting? Sure. So, um, you know, I, my father was an English professor uh, and Shakespeare expert. So I had kind of a literature and uh, wordsmithing start to my life. And um, I began writing in high school, found um, I, I liked it. Um, I had a, a feel for it. I worked on my high school newspaper. And then in college, I worked on my college newspaper. I started doing some stringing work for my hometown newspaper, the Harper Current, and got hired by them straight out of college. And that's where it kind of st really started for me as a, a writer. And then after Bill Clinton got elected, I was really you know drawn to getting involved in politics. And I moved to Washington uh, and ended up getting hired by um, my home state senator, Joe Lieberman. And, um, became a speechwriter. And that's really where it kind of started me down that path of being um, a writing partner. And, you know, when you're a speechwriter, in many cases, in most cases, I would say that's really what your role is. You are a partner to the principal you're working with to help them take their ideas, their vision, and present the best version of their voice to the world. Uh, and, you know, I did some reading and I learned about the craft. And, you know, one of the heroes in the speechwriting community and the icons is a guy named Ted Sorison, who was um, JFK's speechwriter. And, you know, JFK was, you know, one of the best and most respected rhetoricians in politics of, you know, the 20th century. And what I learned about his relationship with his speechwriter was, um, you know, he wasn't, the speechwriter wasn't a transcriptionist or purely a writer. He was a thought partner. Uh, and, um, he and JFK, you know, talked a lot and it was hard to tell where JFK's ideas started and stopped and where Sorensen's started to stop. Um, it was, you know, that kind of partnership and I, that I got to experience, uh, uh, some of that working with Senator Lieberman. He was a terrific boss and he was a writer himself. So he really valued the writing process and I got to really contribute to, um, you know, the words he presented to the public and the arguments he made. And at the same time, always recognizing that it was ultimately the speeches were his, they were his ideas or his words, because um, he coming out of, they're coming from him and he owned them and he more importantly owned the consequences of it. And that's something as a speechwriter or, you know, a writing partner, you always have to be cognizant of is um, that you are there to support the person you're working with, uh, even as a partner. Um, ultimately, it's to help them succeed in whatever they're doing and what they're trying to communicate, the stories they're trying to tell, et cetera. That's so cool. As someone who lives in D.C. and is very close to this life, I very much connected that and I love that so much. How did you come to start Gotham Ghostwriters? Well, um, I worked for uh, more than 10 years with Senator Lieberman. And when he ran for president in 2003 and 2004, um, I worked on his campaign, um, very proud of that, but um, the time was not right for him. Um, he didn't win the Democratic nomination. And at that point, um, I was 37 and um, I had really kind of achieved what I wanted to achieve working with him. And it was a natural transition point in my life. And I would always wanted to live in New York. And so I decided to move up here. Didn't find a traditional job that really spoke to me. So I ended up doing communications consulting for several years. And during that time, you know, my friends and communications and politics who knew me as a writer would occasionally come to me in a panic and say, my boss has to give a speech or we have to write an op-ed and we really don't have the resources internally to do it. Can you help us out? And more often than not, um, I just didn't have the time to do it. So as a favor, I would just introduce one group of friends to another group of friends. I had all these freelance writers that I you know, knew and, and, and felt I could recommend with confidence. And I liked playing that role of connector. And that's the kind of key the part of this is that it wasn't something that I felt was a burden or um, 
I, I really enjoyed that role. And, you know, it took 10 minutes out of my day, no big deal. But after it kept happening and happening by the 20th time, it kind of dawned on me, I'm performing a service here. Uh, more importantly, there seemed to be an opportunity to kind of fill a need in the marketplace. There's all this demand for high level writing and all these terrific freelancers out there. But at that time, they really, and I think to this day, to a large degree still, no really solid mechanism to connect demand with supply. And so as I started exploring this and talking to people, the idea I hit upon that I felt where I could be the most helpful to both um, the people who are looking for writing help and the freelance writer community was to be in that position of matchmaker. And rather than trying to hire a bunch of people on staff to do all the writing, was to instead go in the direction of the internet was taking everything towards customization and specialization and build a network of writing specialists and then put ourselves in the position of being the matchmaker, the curator of that network and the matchmaker. And to be conscious of the fact that, you know, writer skills, their experience, their credentials, all those things matter. But when you're doing collaborative writing, and that's how we really think about it, whether you're writing a book, a speech, series of white papers, op-eds, things like that. It's a collaborative process. You have the, whether it's an individual principal, like a CEO or a politician or an organization or a business is engaging a writer, you know, they're working together to try and, you know, tell a story to the world. And in those cases, particularly when it's a one-on-one -on -one relationship, whether it's a ghostwriter for a book or a speechwriter um, to a principal, um, you know, the, the chemistry and the trust between the principal and the writer matters a lot, even maybe more so than the experience and the skills of the writer. And as I started out the business, that's really kind of the big lesson I learned and how I set up the business model was to recognize that, um, that those intangibles of chemistry, style, taste, um, really could help um, drive, you know, what's gonna be a successful collaboration. And the analogy we use a lot is like, you know, particularly when you're ghostwriting a book or serving as someone's speechwriter, it's a very intimate relationship. It's almost a little bit like a marriage. Um, and there's gotta be that baseline of trust. Um, and that really goes into the heart of what we do at Gotham Ghostwriters and thinking about how writers are gonna fit with the principles they're working with is, you know, are they gonna enjoy working together? Is there gonna be that chemistry? Is there gonna be that baseline of trust? as well as thinking about, does the writer have the right mix of skills and experience to um, you know, uh, help the client succeed? That's so cool. Can you kind of go into like the process of that? Like, I feel like communication must be like so important and how do you even go about matching people? Like, how does this work? <laughs> sure, sure. So when we start engaging with uh, an author for, let's use that since you're primarily focused on the publishing world, um, you know, our first step is to really kind of explain how our agency works and get them um, to appreciate the, the value proposition of our business and the services we offer and learn a little bit about more about them and what their goals and priorities are for the project. And then once they decide they want to work with us, then they'll usually have a deep dive conversation with our editorial director, where he'll learn a little bit more about the story and their vision for the book but most importantly, sort of what they feel their need is as an author, right? Because some authors, you know, they want to be heavily involved in the writing process. And when they're looking for a writing partner, they're not looking for a pure ghostwriter. They're, they're looking for someone who can help guide them through the process, advise them on how to structure the book, you know, maybe trade off in the writing of the chapters, really a true co-writing experience. And then there's other of our clients who they don't have the time and or the ability to write the book. And they're going to rely on the writer to really write every word, um, at least the first drafts, and then the author will review them. And there's that spectrum, right? And trying to figure out from talking to the author, learning about sort of what they feel like they're looking for in their writing partner and the, the workload that they're expecting of them. And then to think about sort of, you know, what their work style is and their communication style and their writing style, what their voice is, and use all of those data points and that guidance from the author then to go out and start a search. And we'll um, usually do outreach to writers on two tracks. One is through, you know, we have a network email list, which will share some specs on the project to the entire list and invite people to kind of raise their hand. And then on a separate track, we will do direct outreach to some writers that we know from experience probably are a good match on paper with what the client's looking for. And from those two tracks, we'll identify a handful of writers that we think 
meet the, the guidance the client's given us. Um, we'll do some vetting, make sure that the client, the writers are both interested and available um, and are, we feel comfortable recommending them. Then we'll share information on each of the writers, writing samples, resume, um, so the client can see their credentials and work product. They'll let us know who they want to interview. And that's really the most important step of the vetting process and the selection process is to have the author you know, learn about what makes these writers tick, how they would approach their project. Would they, will they be able to trust them with their life's work, their life story? And will they, you know, enjoy the process of, you know, because a lot of times, you know, books, as you're, you can imagine, take well over a year to, to both, you know, develop, write, and edit. And, you know, you get, if, it, again, it's like a, a marriage. If you, you don't really like the person um, that you're, you're, you're wedded to in this situation, it's, it's chances are not going to be a very successful collaboration. And then once the client through that interviewing process identifies a writer that they really feel like is the right match for them, then at that point we'll help broker a collaboration agreement, which is kind of a standard contract in the publishing world between an author and either a co-writer or ghostwriter, um, where we'll act as the agent for the writer and um, ha handle the billing. But because we are invested in the success of the relationship, it's not adversarial. We're there again. We're brokering the deal. We're help put making this match stick, um, and then we'll support the author and the writer throughout writing process. And a lot of times, more and more, we're also advising the author on their publishing strategy, whether they're going to go with traditional publishing, making introductions to agents, maybe connecting them to small independent presses that are a better fit for them, or increasingly with a lot of our thought leadership and business authors advising them on the non-traditional publishing path and whether it's basic self-publishing or more elite forms of hybrid publishing. That's so cool. That's, I love that you work as like the agent for the writer and author and all of that. And being involved in all of those steps just sounds like an amazing experience. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and that's what I think differentiates our, our service from, you know, say a pure recruiting agency is, you know, when you're at a, a search firm or recruiting firm, you place someone in a job, you're done, right? That's really just the start for us. That's definitely a big part of the value we're delivering for our the clients we're working with, especially the authors. But we continue to support the relationship throughout the, the creative process and the de editorial development process. And then oftentimes, like I said, you know, in helping them through publication. Uh, and we, so much like, you know, the writer is a partner to the author, we view ourselves as partners to that collaboration, um, and are there to help them succeed. Is there a process that you go through when say like a writer's vision and the author's vision don't always align or they start up heads? I mean, you equated it to a marriage and there's always like those ups and downs. Yes. <laughs> those are like a way that you kind of step in and help with that. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the first things we do is we um, ask the writers if there are any issues to let us know so that we can make sure they don't escalate into, you know, a real conflict or a breakdown in that trust, because then oftentimes the, it's really hard to repair the relationship. And oftentimes it really can come down to authors not just understanding what their responsibilities are, and not feeling comfortable expressing criticism again, because like you, you know, it's a, it, you know, you're you're spent. It's a very intimate relationship. You're spending a lot of time with this person. You develop, you know, some maybe some, you know, uh, affection for them, and you don't want to hurt their feelings. And part of our job in cases like that is to educate the author that actually the writer wants that tough love criticism because without it, they're not going to be able to do their job. And part a bit core of their job is to help the author produce the book that meets their expectations um, and fulfills their vision for what they want to tell the world. And it's hard to do that if the author is hesitant to say, no, I don't like that, right? So in many cases, that troubleshooting role is just as, and again, it's a little bit like being a marriage counselor, it's about communication. And you, you, you identified that right away, is making sure that there's a clear line of communication, there's not a hesitancy to share criticism that tends to deal with a lot of the road bumps, especially early in the process. Um, the scenario you, you described where, you know, the visions don't really align, that really will only happen 
um, if the author is not good at taking advice and right, it is, and it's really focused on, and combined with working with a writer who's not may not be very experienced as a ghostwriter, they may have written a lot under their own name, uh, and that's part of the education process for writers who are kind of transitioning into being a, a, a ghostwriter, collaborative, doing collaborations, um, is being able to sublimate your ego and recognize that your job is to give the author the best advice you can, right? And, and create the best book that you, you think is gonna meet their, their goals. But at the end of the day, it's with their name on the book. If they disagree, you either have to, you know, respect that choice, or if it's so, you feel so strongly about it, then, you know, in certain extreme cases, writers will just sort of say, no, I, I just, I can't support this. I think it's the wrong way to go. And, you know, then in that case, we'll step in, we'll broker some kind of termination agreement and a parting of the ways. And then if the author wants, then we're in a position to help them bring in another writer or an editor to help them complete the book. So interesting. And so kind of of this vein, have you or do you know any ghostwriters who have ever been kind of upset when like they see like the finished product and it's not their name on it? Because that's just kind of the nature of ghostwriting. But does that ever hit personally where you're like oh I was really proud of this and I'm really upset that it's not my name there or no we've really never encountered that we're working with high level professionals and you know there's there is um in addition to the actually technical written contract between the author and the writer there's an unwritten contract in the ghostwriting field right is you do this knowing that you're not necessarily going to get public credit and there are some exceptions when you know the, the in a collaboration where the writer is is named on the cover as you know either and true co-author or more likely a with credit where you know they're they're identified as the co-writer on the on the on the project um but outside of those cases you know the ghostwriter knows what they're signing up for and to be honest with you more often than not they're 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 not just they don't just accept that but they they welcome it because for many writers particularly writers who kind of wear two hats and publish under their own name as well as do ghostwriting it's liberating for them Right, they don't have that pressure of you know having to you know stand by every word because their name is associated with it. And many many of the the top writers we work with who you know again are writing under their own name as well as ghostwriting, they they welcome it. They they really like that kind of. It's almost like a an, an escape for them, a release valve because they don't have that pressure that comes with you know. And I'm you know um, I've been writing under my own name off and on for 25 years is like, I, I am very protective of my words and I agonize over them. And, you know, it's not to say I didn't take pride in the writing I did and, and do some agonizing, but at the same time, at the end of the day, I wasn't my name on it. And um, it gives you a certain, you know, level of freedom that, you know, your job first and foremost is to um, please you know, especially in the case of a speechwriter, please the principal, right? If they feel good about the product that you've helped them, then then you've you've done your job. So if you can't get satisfaction from that, then you're probably um, not cut out to be a ghostwriter or speechwriter or any kind of collaborative writer. Fascinating. I totally get like the being protective of words. I like don't know if I'd be able to rationalize that, which like I guess is why I'm not a ghostwriter. Like I would really struggle. Like I would like put something out there and be like damn, <laughs> especially for those partnerships where, like you said, like some authors like aren't very hands-on and like really trust their ghostwriters. And like yeah. for those specifically, I feel like I would be like, this is mine now. <laughs> That's fascinating. But it's, a, it's a, you know, but it's in, in certain respects, um, you know, there's a recognition on, on some of the, you know, the, the most successful ghostwriters that their contribution is not that they're the, even so much the, the writer of the book, but they they are helping bring a story to life, you know, and they view themselves almost like as a shepherd, um, and they are leading the story and um, helping it become what it was meant to be, um, and they take a lot of pride in that and helping the author kind of realize their vision. So you know, and there are a lot of parallels in you know different creative fields. So like you know, um, being a producer for a for uh, uh, a musical artist right is it's the artist's name on the record 
um, you know, and sometimes the producer, you know, will get publicly identified, but for the most part, they're behind the scenes, right? They're not getting celebrated like the artist is, but the producer, you know, is making a major contribution to helping the, the artists take the, the core elements of that song and turn it into the, the recording that's going to define what that song is, you know, for the, the for the rest of the, its life. And, um, you know, that can be really satisfying if, um, you know, you recognize that um, you're, you're comfortable playing that supporting role. So fascinating. And kind of along this line, like kind of what we're talking about, ghostwriting is a very much feels like it's like a, like a what happened in Vegas kind of vibe. Like we don't talk about it. Like it happened. I was, in, I worked on a project and that's pretty much the line that is out there. Why do you think ghostwriting is such like a more secretive thing? Like a lot of authors don't acknowledge, like they like say that they wrote it. They don't usually like say that they went out and used a ghostwriter sometimes. Ghostwriting feels like a very secretive club vibe situation. <laughs> oh yeah, there, there, there's there's no question. And, and, and we actually did um, a series, uh, which I will uh, share with, link to you, which you maybe want to share with your audience about, about sort of, the, the primer on what is ghostwriting? How does it work? How do you work with a ghostwriter? How do you find a ghostwriter? Um, and the very first, the uh, anchor of that series was what is ghostwriting? Kind of giving people a historical perspective on you know um, what the craft is, what the field has been. And um, you, know, you could argue the Bible was ghostwritten, right? It's one of the oldest creative relationships and, and professions in that dating back to before there was even, you know, um, written documents, right? When storytelling was an oral tradition, right? There was a lot of collaborative storytelling. And that went, uh, went on for, you know, centuries until, you know, this, this conceit of the, you know, the French auteur, meaning there's a single author and, um, you know, you know, really starting with the Enlightenment and through, you know, into the 20th century, we had this kind of almost weird anomalous time where we um, treated the stories that were being told, particularly in book form, as being belonging to one person. But if you worked in publishing, you knew that in many cases, the editor played a very serious role in the creation of text, right? So um, it just but there was this mythology around the, the single author. Uh, and um, whereas in, you know, a lot of other creative fields, like particularly like music um, and, you know, television where, you know, there would be writer's rooms, right? There wasn't, you know, this idea necessarily that there was a single author. Uh, it was much more accepted and understood that there, there was, a, it was a collaborative effort to kind of produce these stories. Um, with, in the book industry though, this didn't really start changing until the internet really became the dominant communications medium. And with the internet and digital media and the transparency that comes with that, it's a little bit like the Wizard of Oz, right? The curtains got pulled back, right? And the, everyone could see the wires. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you look back to when, you know, President Obama came into office and had this young, good looking speechwriter named John Favreau. And, he became almost like a mini celebrity, right? So this idea that somehow that, you know, Obama didn't use a speechwriter, you know, even outside of, you know, political elites and the, the insiders in Washington, you know, people sort of knew who this guy was. And um, more and more, you know, like, um, you know, whether it was CEOs um, using speechwriters or ghostwriters for their books, it just kind of became more and more understood that, you know, people had help in you know sharing their vision and telling their stories the the one area though where it's still kind of there's um kind of this hush hush you know stays in vegas idea on the author side um, is really primarily around celebrities right and um you know we can spend a lot of time talking about the psychology behind that why that is i don't want to get into it i don't want to disparage anyone <laughs> but outside of that really um you know the, the taboo that used to be there has been dissipating uh, considerably over the last, you know, say 20 years, again, with the, the rise of digital media and, um, 
and the transparency that comes with it. And, you know, to the point where more and more authors are openly talking about their writing partners, like that they were a central part of the process and giving them, giving them credit, whether it's on the cover or even doing sitting in, doing meeting interviews. You know, one of my favorite examples is, um, you know, Sheryl Sandberg, when she wrote Lean In, um, she actually enlisted a college friend of hers who was a TV writer, wasn't necessarily even a, a book ghostwriter, um, but because uh, her friend knew her well and she could trust her, she, it was a really natural and easy thing for her to kind of bring her in and help her um, write the book. And she was very open in sort of saying that her, her friend, and one's name is Nell Scoville, is a terrific, terrific writer, um, we've gotten to know a little bit, um, you know, was her, her partner on the project. And so, and, and from our standpoint, we think that's a really healthy thing because again, in so many other creative fields, you know, it's, it's not even, you know, it's not an open secret. It's just an open reality that the storytelling process, the, the editorial development process um, is collaborative. And, um, you know, there's no shame uh, for a busy CEO who's not a trained writer sort of say, yeah, I, I brought in a professional writer to kind of take my philosophy and my ideas and my arguments and really help me hone them. I like really want to get to like a point where everyone openly admits it. Like, I feel like it'd be so interesting and be so like such a great evolution of the literary world. And so like, I'm really excited for like, say like the next 10, 20 years for that to become more normative. Yeah. No, like, and, and, you know, it's really kind of um, becoming part of a larger conversation, right? And particularly in publishing. So there's been now a move to provide credit to translators on the cover of books, right? Because if you think about it, like, you know, whoever translated Elena Ferrante's My Brilliant Friend and her series for um, English-speaking audiences, I mean, that book has sold millions of copies, right? Both as books. And the translator played a vital role in, in helping, you know, take the Italian version of that story and, and make it accessible to English speaking audiences. And, you know, um, I, I, you know, obviously I have my, I, I, I'm open about my bias and my point of view, but I think, you know, that that's a great, that's a really healthy development to credit the translators publicly who worked on the project because they played a vital role in the, the, again, bring that story to life for a wider audience. And like translate, translating is so difficult and it's not a word for word. And yes. I think it's like, like stuff like that, I think people like forget. And I feel like it's very similarly for like speech writing. Like you can have an idea, but like putting it word for word, like how you want to say it isn't always the easiest. And so like you like have to like see the words and then re like focus it in to like the message you want and what the sentiment is behind these words. And I feel like like translating and speech writing and even ghostwriting, I feel like they all fall along that spectrum of having to really hone in on the message behind the words to be able to do it. Absolutely. And, you know, like, again, um, going back to my Capitol Hill days, right? And you're <laughs> familiar with this because you have friends who work on the Hill. Like most senators are not experts in technology policy or climate change, um, but they have, they're, they're not getting elected because they're experts on any necessarily one of these things. It's because that they're, they're um, because of their values, their judgment, their character. And then they hire really smart young people to help advise them, right? And, you know, sharpen their understanding so that they can make really informed decisions. And so, and no one is ever going, you know, no one ever sort of says it's unethical or, you know, why don't they know everything and that is something wrong about hiring policy experts to advise them on these things. And it's just very similar in terms of whether you're hiring a speechwriter or a writer to help you write a book. I think when people think of, say, like ghostwriters, they think a lot of the memoirs and the biographies, but mm -hmm. like Gotham ghostwriters in particular really show like on their, on your website, that there are so many different services that are available and that 
ghostwriting isn't just these memoirs and these biographies and getting down a life story. Would you say that most of your work isn't just like the literature realm? Yeah, so our, our clients kind of break down into a handful of different buckets, right? So when it comes to books, you know, definitely the, the biggest bucket is, you know, business books, public affairs, thought leadership, really idea serious, not idea driven, serious nonfiction. Then the second biggest bucket is, like you said, is, is memoir, autobiography, uh, family histories, company histories, telling those stories. Um, and then the third bucket in nonfiction is a mix of, um, you know, health and wellness, psychology, relationship, dating type books, pop culture, sports. But then, you know, uh, and this is where I think a lot of people are, are really surprised is, you know, a growing part of our business and the author base we're working with is um, in fiction, um, particularly in genre fiction. So thrillers, romance, um, sci-fi. And, you know, I'm a big believer that the um, democratization of publishing and storytelling that social media drive is driving, right? Anyone could be an, a, a writer and publisher these days if you have a Facebook account or a Twitter account or even on your Instagram page. And um, that has, I think, em emboldened and encouraged a lot of people who never would have tried to um, either you know, tell their life story in, in a memoir or um, you know, take a vision they have for um, a thriller or sci-fi story um, and turn it into a book. And one of, again, one of the great things is that if you have that vision and that passion and you have a good idea for a story, there are a terrific array of professionals, whether it's, you know, writers, editors, coaches, even available now to help you take that vision and turn it into a, a book that you'll be proud to put your name on. And, um, and what's really neat is that, you know, there are so many novelists and, um, you know, screenwriters who are really enjoying working with these, we, we refer to this, this part of our client base as the dreamers, you know, the people who are like, just, um, they, they have this story inside of them and they're really burning to kind of get it out into the world. And some of them are really ambitious and they want to, you know, get a publishing deal and even try and turn it into a film or television series. But there are others, it's like a bucket list thing, right? It's just like, I have this great story and I, I want to document it. And the, the nice thing is, you know, there are really great um, spectrum of resources out there. So you could hire a very elite writer to help you, you know, try and get a book published at a major publishing house. And then there are, you know, people with smaller budgets that are really just looking for uh, a skilled editor slash coach to kind of guide them through the process, maybe help them figure out the narrative arc of the story, character development, lots of different kind of subspecialties in, in the fiction storytelling world. Um, and, you know, again, I, I, I think that's a, a really positive development and a wonderful, th wonderful thing, partly because it's allowing a lot of people who, you know, were marginalized and ignored by the publishing world to now have their voice heard. Um, and I think we're seeing that in other realms of our culture. Um, and it's nice to see that coming to book publishing as well. I never would have guessed that like fiction was going to be such a big part of your portfolio. That's so mind blown. My mind is just blown. I'm just like grappling with this. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. I, this is why I love literature so much. <laughs> what do you think the hardest ghostwriting project is? Oh, it's hard to boil it down to one. So, or, or one kind. So let me give you maybe a couple Perfect. Um, types. So one is where there is an author who's really conflicted about doing a book, right? And we see this with some of our clients, right? Particularly when it comes to like business and thought leadership book. Client, you know, has reached a certain level, you know, whether it's a CEO, executive of a company or um, a, a consultant slash expert, and people are telling them, oh, you should, should write a book. You should write a book. You should write a book or you should publish a book. And they're like, okay, you know, and... They're like, you know, I need help writing this book. And they don't necessarily appreciate that even if they're going to hire a ghostwriter, that it's still a major investment of time um, and emotional energy. 
and they start in the process and they're just like, you know, they, they start skipping meetings, right? Or they, 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 they ignore emails from the writer, they're not reviewing drafts. And it just, you know, through their actions, they're, they're signaling really that they're at best ambivalent about doing the book, but in their heart of hearts, they really just don't want to do it. They don't, they don't have that commitment to try. Um, and I think that's really frustrating for the writers because if they're, they're, you know, starting down this path, they're making a commitment themselves. And there's a, you know, from a business perspective, there's an opportunity cost, right? So if you're committing to doing, you know, a business book for say the four to six months, that limits your ability to take on other projects. There, there's a ceiling in literally how many hours of the day they have. And for to kind of start down that road, make that commitment, turn down other work, and then have the client just sort of say, you know what, my heart's not really in this. And that's part of the role that we play it with our agency before we kind of consummate the relationship is to make sure that the client knows what they're committing to. And, and so in the contracts where the, the agreements we broker, we try to really kind of spell out what the author's obligations are. So there's a clarity of expectations and you know it doesn't totally eliminate the potential for that kind of commitment failure, but it definitely decreases the chances. So that's one type is where the author is just like not really into doing it. Um, the other is, um, you know, at the other extreme is they're hyper committed and they are making the writer do draft over draft over draft and not recognizing that that is, you know, in some cases outside the scope of the contract, kind of abusive of the, the, the writer's time, you know, emailing them or calling them at two in the morning. And, um, you know, in, in those cases, again, there's one of the roles we'll play, or if a writer has a literary agent, right, that's kind of running interference with them, you know, part of our job is to kind of, you know, basically remind the author about what the client, what's in the contract, what the writer's obligations are, um, and, you know, to, you know, hold them to account or kind of enforce the contract if they're really pushing the bound well beyond the boundaries of what's in the scope of work. It feels very much like my assistant days, like, and it's like weird flashbacks, <laughs> but so much more fun, but weird flashbacks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you and your writers end up balancing several different projects or is it very much like one project at a time or does it all depend on the different types of projects? It really does depend. Um, and part of, again, our, our role in, in making that match is having an understanding of what the client's expectations are um, about the commitment, time commitment of the writer, the publishing, the, the production schedule, all those things. And then the, so that the writer can really make an informed decision and, and make an, an honest commitment to, to do the work that's necessary to complete the project on time, right? And, uh, and in some cases that might mean like, you know, they have to sort of say to the author, I'm already committed to do this other project and it's gonna finish in April. So probably the earliest I could start your project is you know, May or June. And that's part of the negotiation process is having you know, both parties on the same page about you know, when the work's gonna start, when it's gonna finish, whether the writer is allowed. Like in some cases, the author will say, no, I want you to commit to this exclusively. And that's important to know upfront because then that, because the writer can't take on other work during that time, then they're gonna to have to get paid more. Um, because they're sacrificing their ability to earn um, a living by the, the author basically buying all their time. Um, so it's really just important to, to kind of figure that all out in the negotiation stage before a contract is signed um, to avoid misunderstandings and, and a breakdown um, once the writing process has started. There are, and then some of it really depends on the, the ghostwriter's um, work style, right? There's some writers who are super efficient and they have a you know really good system for um, how they're going to work, and they can juggle two, maybe even three projects at a time. But there are others who are are much like to work serially, right? So they only commit to one project at a time. And it could be because like you know they're doing freelance journalism on the side, or it could be that because of their family situation they have limited bandwidth. Um, so you'll you'll see you know a, a range of you know different workloads, uh, depending on, you know, what's going on in the writer's professional and personal life, what their work style is. Top professional ghostwriters, more often than not, they're going to, you know, do 
somewhere between two to four books a year. If they're doing like really serious um, nonfiction where, you know, there's a major time commitment. Now, there are definitely some of the clients we're working with, you know, they're pretty simple as told to type books. They take three months to write. They're not super time intensive. So I'm talking about those cases, though, where like, you know, it's a 250, 300 page book. Um, you're talking about serious topic and, you know, you're probably going to have a, a time horizon of, you know, anywhere from sort of six months to 12 months to actually, the, you know, developing the framework for the book, doing the writing and then doing the editing. For those times when people are working on like multiple projects at once, do you find that it, there's a difficulty in keeping voices distinct and separate? Or does like the voice of the writer like tend to bleed into all of these projects? Like, have you ever noticed that? Yeah, I would say that, um, again, really skilled ghostwriters are like chameleons. They'll just, you know, take on the the color of their surroundings and they'll, they'll adapt to the voice of the author. And I would say one of the, um, great aids to ghostwriters is, um, through, you know, advances in digital technology, right? The ability to capture, literally capture the voice of an author is much easier and less time intensive than it used to be. And, you know, before, you know, you you had digital recording devices and the software that could do transcription, right? You would have a tape recorder, you give that tape to a transcription service and you would have to wait, you know, sometimes weeks for them to transcribe hours and hours of interviews, right? Now it can be done almost instantaneously, right? You take the, your digital file, you upload it. There are all these, you know, services that now do transcription um, electronically. And that's a godsend for a, a, a ghostwriter or a collaborative writer who is juggling, say, two projects at once because they can very quickly get the, the transcriptions. And from those transcriptions, then you have your foundation for the author's voice, right? You know, they're their vocabulary, you know, their sentence structure, how they, you know, the pacing of how they talk, you know, how they communicate. And then it, that makes the job of a writer a lot easier. I never would have thought this was a good, going to be a question that led into transcription. <laughs> That's fascinating. Fascinating. Like no one can see the hand movements, but they're there. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. That's you're blowing my mind, Dan. You're blowing my mind. <laughs> yeah. And then I would say the other thing is that, again, where, where technology really comes into play is, you know, beyond transcription, right? So there are, um, uh, you know, time management systems, right, that uh, some writers use, right, where they're going to, you know, block out, I'm doing this person on this day and, and you know, keeping their calendar straight through, you know, you know, whether it's, you know, Google Calendar or different cloud-based services, again, and then you're, you know, doing calendar invites. So, you know, you, you minimize the communication breakdowns and then, um, you know, being able to use, whether it's Google Docs or Dropbox, these different file sharing um, uh, systems uh, and services. And again, with, you know, Google Docs, you can, you know, this idea of having to kind of ship pages to the author or fax them, right? Um, kind of, you know, it, it becomes so much simpler and seamless, right? You have a shared document that you can see the, a writer making edits in real time. And so I, I think that again is really assists the, the collaboration and makes it easier for both parties to not just communicate to make sure they're literally on the same page. Technology is great. You guys, (laughs) do you have a favorite type of project that you like to work on? Um, well, um, since I left speech writing in Washington and I started this company, um, I'm really not doing any of the writing. I'm running the business and making sure the clients are, you know, being well taken care of. Um, um, I have a love-hate relationship with writing and it's, um, I'm not a fast writer unless I absolutely have to be. So it's particularly like when I'm writing for myself. So I, I miss it sometimes. But um, no, I really enjoy being in this role of um, not just matchmaker, but problem solving, 
right? And that's a big part of what I, I look at this as is our clients are coming to us because they have a problem. They have this book they want to write or speech they're going to give or series of speeches, some ideas they want to share with the world. And they really need the right partner to help them do it. And we're in this great position to help a lot of people who have that problem find not just a good, a good solution, but really the right solution for their needs and priorities. And that gives me a lot of satisfaction. Um, and also that, you know, I'm a big believer in the value of writing and of writers and being in a position to where we can be advocates for um, the writers we work with um, and make sure that they're getting paid for the service they're providing um, in a way they deserve. That also brings a lot of satisfaction. And again, it's, it's one of the neat things about our business model is it's kind of rare in business where you can get well compensated um, and, and run a viable business by bringing two parties together. So doing that and then, you know, the, the satisfaction I get from having come up with this idea and help and slowly building it over time into a viable business. And again, a, a service that really helps people, um, you know, that's really satisfying. That's awesome. Because like one of my favorite things is getting emails from our clients who are like, just so appreciative, like they're so thankful because like it's this thorn in their side often where, you know, they just, you know, and a lot of them have tried hiring a ghostwriter on their own and it's gone badly. They've lost money. They feel like they've been burned. And, you know, we get all these great thank you notes from people even as the collaboration's underway, but before it's finished, oh my God, this is such a relief to me that you were able to help me, you know, find this person. That's so awesome. You've been in the industry for over 25 years now. What is some of the most interesting trends that you've noticed? This is very big. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's a, no, it's, I would say like, again, I don't want to be repetitive, but to maybe just elaborate on this point a little bit, really the democratization of publishing and storytelling. Um, is just been transformative. And, um, you know, as someone who didn't kind of come up through traditional book publishing, but came into the doing the ghostwriting work and are starting this agency as an outsider, you know, I don't have uh, this um, romantic attachment to traditional publishing or the, um, you know, the, the elitism, unfortunately, that com comes from that community. And, you know, my attitude is, you know, traditional publishing serves an incredibly important role and, and it will continue to do so. But with different forms of self-publishing and non-traditional publishing, it allows so many more people to kind of share their stories um, and um, bring to readers um, stories that they may never have, have, have gotten before or got access to before. And, um, you know, I think overall, that's a very, very healthy thing um, for our culture, our democracy. Um, and, you know, one example that's, you know, near and dear to my heart, because it's something I'm involved with is, and I think you being from Washington will appreciate this. We formed a partnership with the media company, Real Clear Politics, um, to help them start a custom book publishing uh, department called Real Clear Publishing. And the idea there was to um, create a platform for a wide range of authors who are independent thinkers and don't fall neatly into the far left or the far right. Um, and who unfortunately, because they're not either brand names or more importantly, they're not speaking to, you know, throwing red meat to one side or the other, um, they're ignored by traditional publishing, even though they may have some really important ideas uh, to share. And we set up through Real Clear Publishing an opportunity for a much wider variety of thinkers and advocates, um, policy experts to take, get their ideas into the political bloodstream because Real Clear Politics has such brand credibility and reach to the, exactly the right audience that a lot of political and policy authors want to reach. Uh, and, and so that's really been fulfilling to me, I guess, someone, you know, is a political junkie and still has that in my blood is, you know, I, I think that is very healthy for our democracy to be, create more opportunities for a wider range, uh, viewpoints to not just, you know, get published, but to, to be visible and to get, uh, access to, to the right audience. 
It's been so interesting doing this podcast because I had the ability to interview people from a whole bunch of different sectors. One of my very first interviews was with a small scale publisher and seeing the rise of small companies like that and the rise of self-publishing, I find amazing. And it's really just like opening so many more doors for everyone to enter the publishing world. Because like you said, like the big four are the big four and have very narrow scopes of what they even really can do. And so I like completely agree. That's it's like so fascinating. Well, thank you. I have one last closing question. Sure. It's my closing question to all my guests. What books are you currently binging? Oh, I have a terrible confession as the father of a very, very active uh, one and a half year old. <laughs> my my reading time uh, is sadly limited to uh, staying current on the news and, you know, making sure I'm uh, answering all the emails from our clients and my staff. Um, so um, I, what I will say, and we, I haven't got a chance to talk about is um during the pandemic, I actually got to co-write a book with my wife, who's an Italian journalist, about her experience um, as a uh, immigrant uh, living in America in the age of Trump and the kind of the cultural differences she noticed and observed through the prism of our marriage. Um, and um, uh, that book came out in the fall of 2020, right after we had adopted our daughter. And now we're going to be working on a sequel. That's so cool. Send me the name. I'll link it in the description so everyone can check it out. Okay. I have to warn people it's, it's written in Italian. <laughs> but the next, the next, the sequel, um, because it's going to be targeted at a wider audiences, um, we're going to make sure it get translated into English. Awesome. That's so So cool. stay tuned. Well, thank you. Wherever it gets published, send it to me. I'll link it. I will. I will. Awesome. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. No, my pleasure. You ask great questions and thank you for having me and good luck with the podcast. This has been Dan Gerstein from Gotham Ghostwriters. You can check out all of the services they provide on their website, gothamghostwriters.com. And you can follow them on social media at Gotham underscore ghosts. I hope you loved hearing about the super interesting company and more about ghostwriting. I know I found it fascinating. As always, if you're interested in receiving these episodes early and ad-free, or you want to listen to the limited series I have on Dark Romance, be sure to join the Patreon. Also, check out the Etsy store to see all of the new merch pieces I just added to the shop. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Bookshelf Binge. I'm your host, Jessica, and you can follow me on all the socials at Bookshelf Binge. And I'll talk to you next week. Oh, 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 oh,